Elizabeth is a 26-year-old nurse in the UK. She works in a healthcare facility there uh, among the elderly, and she befriended one particular old woman, and it became her habit to sit and have lunch with that dear lady suffering from dementia. On one lunch, um, Elizabeth finished, as did her, uh, her, her, her new friend and patient, and she got up to leave. She sensed fear on the face of this dear elderly woman, and she immediately sat down again to explore, what are you fearful of? And this woman said, I'm, 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 I'm afraid that, I'm afraid you won't come back. Immediately, uh, as though it was an epiphany, uh, Elizabeth knew what she needed to do. She found a three-by-five card. And she simply wrote on it, I promise to come back tomorrow so we can have lunch together. Because I said so. She signed her name, and she gave it to this dear lady. The next day, as she stepped into the dining hall at lunchtime, she saw this dear lady, and as soon as that lady saw Elizabeth, her face lit up. Elizabeth couldn't help but notice that she was holding that three-by-five card. It was as though it was her her life lock. It was representative of the promise Elizabeth made. You remembered, she said. Yeah, promises are meant to be kept. In our continuing study through the fourth gospel, we are in that glorious section that we call Jesus' Upper Room Discourse, chapters 14, 15, and 16. Actually, it begins in, at the end of chapter 13, where Jesus has an ongoing conversation with his disciples when he just has but hours left on planet Earth in his um, in, in his uh, uh, in his in his, his physical state, the disciples had heard repeatedly of Jesus talking about a betrayer of his upcoming death, and, and that was continually unnerving for them. Something that they really had a difficult time wrapping their mind around, because from a Jewish perspective. Uh, they, they understood that when Messiah came, the kingdom would come. And, and they, would be, they would be fused together. You, you, you couldn't separate them. And yet Jesus was talking about his death. They knew he was the Messiah. And they couldn't put all of the pieces together. It just didn't make sense.
So Jesus, in effect, took out a three-by-five card, scribbled on it, I'll be back. And he signed it. Because I said so. Last Lord's Day, we looked at a portion of John chapter 14 where Jesus makes a couple of promises to his men. The first promise we find in verse 12 of John 14. Jesus says to his men, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. Because I go to the Father. As we took a look at that, uh, it, the, the, the works that his men would do w- would not be quantity, quantitatively or qualitatively um, greater than Jesus did in terms of his physical miracles. They would be involved in a work like Jesus does, greater than Jesus does, both in quality and in quality, in that they, albeit imperfect, would be involved in the process of winning the souls of men and women unto faith for all of eternity. Second promise that we looked at last week, Jesus gives to his men, verse 14, of chapter 14 ask me anything in my name and I will do it it's it's not like this is a magic formula in Jesus name no it is according to his will according to his purposes when we pray according to his will according to his purposes he is delighted to do exactly as we pray. So the question becomes, where do we get the strength? Where do we get the wisdom? Where do we get the skill? Where do we get all of the divine stuff that we need in order to do these greater works and to pray these kind of kingdom-building prayers? That's where our text comes in this morning. Jesus isn't done writing on his three-by-five card. Follow along with me as I read our text. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 15. If you love me, Jesus continues, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, and that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and and you in me, and I in you. 
He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now we're going to pause there in the middle of Jesus' discourse. And this is going to be our text for the next two weeks. There is just so much material here. We could spend more time than just that. But I'm going to break this down into into two um, sections, Uh, what, what, what we've just read. We're going to talk about the transformer, namely the Holy Spirit, and the transformation that the Holy Spirit brings into our life. This morning, we're going to narrow our focus to the work of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to look at verse 16. We'll save verse 15 for next week. I want you to look at verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now we are so privileged to be able to have um, access to the original words, the original language um, of the New Testament. The Greek language, biblical Greek language, has two words that are similarly translated in our English text. I might say that they are identically translated. The word another, and you find it in verse 16, when Jesus talks about another helper. The word another um, translates two distinct Greek words. And it's worth our time to tear them apart to understand what they are. I put them in your notes, transliterated them into English, the word allos and the word heteros. Allos, another, means similar, or another of a similar kind. The word heteros means another of a different kind. Let me illustrate. Let's say that I want to gift you each with an apple. Now, if I had the opportunity, I would give you one of my favorite apples. I eat apples all the time. This is a gala apple. It's my favorite. Let's say that I go to the store because I would like to gift you with a gala apple. And when I go to the store, here my store fell down. Oh dear, 
Um, I think this is Gary's apple. It's bruised, yeah. I go to the store, and I look for gala apples. And they're short in supply. But I put I, all of the apples, all the gala apples that they have in my cart. That's an alos apple. It's another apple of the same kind. But I fill up my cart to give all of you an apple with another variety. It's not the same. It's another apple, but it's a heteros apple. It's another apple of a different kind. Is one better than another? Well, no, they're they're both apples, but they're just different. Now, both words, alos and heteros, are used side by side in Galatians chapter 1, if you want to turn there with me. Galatians chapter 1, Paul is talking to a group of people in this circular letter that circulates in the northern province of Galatia, present-day Turkey. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 1, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Look at the footnote. Literally, another gospel. A heteros gospel. Which is really not another. That is, it's not an alos gospel. Paul says, I am, I am perplexed why I preach the gospel, and there are other, other uh, people that are, are, are preaching, and you are listening to other preachers, and they may use different words, but it's the same gospel. It's the alos gospel. It's the Allos gospel. And yet he shames them for allowing their head to be turned for a heteros gospel. You know the word heteros in the word heterodox. Okay, something that is orthodox is straight. It's true. It's consistent with the source. A heteros, a, or heterodoxy, is something that is different. It's different teaching. It's based on something completely other than. In John chapter 16, 14, verse 16, Jesus says, I'm going to send you an alos helper. A helper that's different um, No, I don't want to use that word. A helper, another helper of a similar kind. There's so much confusion about... uh, Here, you you can have this apple. There was so much confusion about the... The, the nature of the work of the Holy Spirit. I, I'd like to take a, a bit of time and look at, rather systematically at what does the whole of Scripture teach about the Holy Spirit. 
second bullet point in your notes under point number one. Fill in the blank. The Holy Spirit, Scripture teaches us, is a person. The Holy Spirit's a person. The Holy Spirit is not a higher power. The Holy Spirit is not some kind of impersonal force. He is a person. He has a mind. He has emotions. He has a will. Now, I, find, I put a number of Scripture references in your notes. You can go back and look at these later. But, but you will find there that the Holy Spirit thinks. The Holy Spirit feels. The Holy Spirit chooses. The Holy Spirit can be lied to. The Holy Spirit can can be blasphemed. The Holy Spirit can be insulted. He is a person. The word spirit in the scriptures is neuter. But when a pronoun is substituted for the noun, it's always masculine. The Holy Spirit is a he. It's not an it. He is a person. Second bullet point. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. He shares the attributes of deity. He is eternal. He is all the omnis. Omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. He shares all of the deity qualities. Scripture talks about him being the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Jesus. It doesn't make him any less because he's not the Father, not the Son. Uh, No, he is his own entity, but he is completely, fully, eternally God. He's part, an integral part of the Trinity. In Acts chapter 5, we read the account of Peter engaging with a gentleman by the name of Ananias who made a contribution to the early church. He gave a piece of property, the proceeds rather, of a piece of property that he sold. He didn't have to give anything, he chose to give a portion of it, but he said that he gave all of what he got from the sale of the property. Peter confronts Ananias and says in verse 3 of chapter 5, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back Some of the price of the land, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it now that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. What Peter does here is he equates, rightly, correctly, the Holy Spirit with God. Ananias lied to God. He lied to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, here's the point, is fully, completely deity. He is a divine person. Next bullet point. The Holy Spirit is a divine person with a divine mission. In the 
not so very frequently quoted book of Haggai. Where's Haggai? Third book from the end of the Old Testament. In the second chapter of that uh, very brief book, we read this. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, says the Lord, my spirit is abiding in your midst. We could paraphrase that and say, the Holy Spirit was with his people. Note the preposition. It's, as we say, muy importante. The Holy Spirit was with his people. Right? Um, if, you, uh, if, you, if you look at uh, Psalm 51, one of those penitential psalms written by David when he crashed and burned after his illicit affair with uh, Bathsheba and killing her husband. Wow, that mess. In Psalm 51, we read these words. Verse 11, David prays. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So many people have used this this particular phrase um, unaware of what they think it means. So many think that that this prayer of David was, uh, he, he was, he was afraid he was going to lose his salvation because of his sin with Bathsheba and against her husband and all of the other mess that went with it, all of his lying. Um, in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit had a divine mission. Now, we, we find the Holy Spirit much more frequently re- referenced in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, he was very, very active, and he had a very distinct role. He was with God's people in a general sense, but in a very specific sense, he was with his key people to enable them to do particular things. He equipped his people for particular works of service. Now, David prayed this prayer in Psalm 51, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, because of what he saw in his father-in-law, who happened to be the first king of Israel, Saul, son of Kish. And in 1 Samuel chapter 10, It was prophesied, verse 6, I'm reading now, the Holy Spirit will come upon you mightily and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. The Holy Spirit at that point came upon Saul, equipping him to be the king of Israel. And he prophesied as a sign for the people around him that there was a divine working through this man Saul for the sake of the kingdom 
of Israel. Four verses later, that's exactly what happened. And the Holy Spirit came upon Saul. Chapter 16 of this particular book, we find an ominous set of words in verse 14 of chapter 16, 1 Samuel. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Because of his sin, because of his rebellion, the Holy Spirit left Saul. Has nothing to do with his salvation. Has everything to do with the power, the equipping, the wisdom, the skill that God gave Saul in order to do his kingly work. And now, Saul was swimming upstream all by himself. He had no help, no divine enablement to do what he was called to do. That's what, Paul, that's what David feared in Psalm 51. Because of his sin with Bathsheba, her husband at all, David was afraid that the Lord was going to remove that divine enablement from him. Because we see the, the Holy Spirit was with his people in the Old Testament. He was not in them. Different preposition. It makes all the difference. We could go back further in the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 11, we find Moses collecting a bunch of men, 70 in number, to assist him in shepherding God's people. They'd be taking care of some of the minor disputes and difficulties and differences that, uh, that, that were experienced there. And, and um, in, in Numbers chapter 11, verse 25, um, we, we read this. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses. And the Lord took of the Spirit who was upon Moses and placed him, that is the Spirit, upon the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. Again, there was this verbal, physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming upon these men, enabling them to do the work they were called and now being equipped to do. It happened just that one time, and everybody saw these were the men that the Lord was using to shepherd the people. He had a divine mission. We find the same in Judges chapter 14, verse 6, with regard to, uh, to Samson. The Holy Spirit came upon him in order to enable him to do the work he was called to do. Back in our text. Jesus says, um, in verse 16, I will, he, will, he will give you another, another helper uh, that he may be with you forever. Uh, verse 17, he abides with you and will be in you. 
Different preposition. Oh, now what Jesus has just written on his three-by-five card that he's handing his, to his disciples is something far more significant. You don't just have the Holy Spirit hanging around giving you some help and some wisdom and some skill, some knowledge to enable you to do what you're called to do. Now the Holy Spirit is going to take up residence. Oh my. The story just gets better. Second page of your notes. Let's look a little bit more specifically at our text. Verse 16 identifies this divine person with a divine mission as another helper, an alos helper, another helper of the same kind. Now, depending on the translation that you have, it may read differently. You may have a translation that renders this uh, Greek word uh, as helper. Um, if you have the King James Bible, it's um, comforter. If you have a Revised Standard, it's um, um, a counselor. Uh, another very popular translation is to call this one um, um, an advocate. The, uh, the Greek word drug into the new uh, drug into the English language is, is, is to refer to him as the paraclete. You've probably heard of that, that, that kind of language. Um, it comes from two Greek words that are glued together. It starts with a preposition meaning alongside of and then the root means to call. So this word translated helper, counselor, uh, comforter, advocate means literally to call alongside of. Now in classical Greek, this particular word, uh, uh, a paraclete, was used in a legal sense. One who had somebody who came alongside of them, who was called alongside of them to render legal help legal aid. We find this idea very clearly um, referenced in 1 John chapter 2. Chapter 2 verse 1 reads this way, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If you find yourself in deep weeds, hot water, because of your sin, there's help. There's one who will come alongside you. His, he, he is the advocate. And, and who, is, who is the paraclete here? Look at your text, don't look at me. Who is the advocate, as Paul mentioned? It's Jesus, the Christ, right. Jesus is the paraclete. Now, back in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm going to send you, or rather he says here that the Father's going to send him in chapter 16, verse 7. He says he's going to send him. 
Um, again, the, the, the members of the Trinity work together. They work simultaneously. The Father sends the Spirit. The Son sends the Spirit. The Spirit goes, and He is another paraclete. He is another advocate just like Jesus. They're both gala apples. He will give you another counselor, and he will be with you forever. The King James is um, maybe the more common understanding or, 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 or translation that we, uh, we, we remember. And I will send you another comforter. Um, that particular word really needs to get updated. When it was originally used centuries ago, it was much more closely tied to its Latin roots, literally meaning um, with strength, con fortis, with strength. Now, as, as languages change, that particular word has changed to refer to um, um, giving solace to someone who is struggling, weak. Now, certainly the, the disciples were weak on this particular occasion. But rather than thinking of the Holy Spirit as one who gives solace after the battle, we should rather think of the Holy Spirit giving us strength for the battle. He is our advocate our counselor, our helper. Verse 17, he gets another title. That is, Jesus continues in verse 17, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now this statement in verse 17 is very close, even though it was a couple of weeks back, when we looked at verse 6 in this particular chapter, when Jesus says of himself, I am the truth. Or to say it literally, I am, I am the truth. Jesus is uh, we, we might say he's redundant, but that has a negative connotation as though Jesus doesn't know um, the language which he is using. No, he does it with intention. He's saying, I, I, I am, with reference to his divinity, I am the truth. And now he speaks of the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. They are not in competition. They are working side by side. They are both truth declarers, the Holy Spirit, the helper, the advocate. This is one who does only that which is consistent with him who is the truth. Now he says the world cannot receive, cannot see, cannot know him. I appreciate these words by D.A. Carson. Listen carefully. He says, 
profoundly materialistic, the world is suspicious of what it cannot see. Let me read that again. Profoundly materialistic, the world is suspicious of what it cannot see. It doubts what it cannot see, what it, what it can, what it doesn't see. It discounts it, sidelines it, cancels it, as if mm, I'm just going to put my fingers in my ears and over my eyes, and I I don't hear anything and I don't see anything. Now, the Holy Spirit, um, being fully God, is not going to be recognized by the world. The world cannot, it doesn't possess the ability, the capacity to receive, to, 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 to know, to understand the truth. They can't understand Jesus as the embodiment of truth, so they're certainly not going to understand or receive the Holy Spirit. It's not going to happen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Um, that's 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The Holy Spirit will not be understood will not be received, will not be known by, um, by, by people of the, uh, of the outside world. But, back to our text, the disciples had the Holy Spirit with them in more of a global sense as we find the Holy Spirit working among God's people in general in the Old Testament. That was the case. But Jesus promised them this additional preposition. He abides with you and will be in you. He is the one who is going to come, strengthen, adopt them. Verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you that's how Jesus signs his 3x5 card. <laughs> I will come to you. You are not going to be alone. You're not going to be forsaken. You're, I'm not going to forget about you. 12 o'clock tomorrow, we've got a date. We're going to have lunch together. Now, there's all kinds of, of um, um, uh, uh, Bible teachers that have been exercised over... Uh, um, verse 18, and, and what Jesus means by saying, I will come to you. And, 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 um, and, their, and their comments, their commentary centers around one of, one of three understandings, one, uh, one of three interpretive choices. When Jesus says he's coming to us, is he talking to uh, the disciples specifically about the resurrection or is he talking metaphorically about the coming of the Holy Spirit? Or is he talking 
um, outside of, of our day, our generation, as he, is he talking about his, his, the parousia, the, 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 the second coming of Christ? Um, honestly, I, I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time um, arguing one position or another. We say, simply say, yep, he's coming. And he came at the resurrection, and he did send the Holy Spirit, and in that he came, and he will be coming again. But the uh, verses uh, following would lead us to believe he might be talking about the, one of those first two. Look at verse 19. After a little while, the world will not see me, Jesus says, but you will see me, semicolon, because I live. You will live also. All right, well, the first part of verse 19 uh, could easily be a reference to Jesus coming after his resurrection. The world's not going to see me. I'm going to be dead. And from everything that we have written for us in the New Testament, Jesus did not appear to unbelievers during that 40-year period of time from, from, um, from Easter to the Ascension. He just appeared to believers. All right? Well, the world didn't, wasn't going to see him any longer, but you will see me. Hang on, guys, just three more days. Hmm. Because I live, you also will live. Well, that could easily be a reference to either the resurrection or maybe even uh, the second coming. There's a, there's a promise that because of Jesus' resurrection, we too will be raised. Verse 20, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Um, there is, there is, a, there is a, an essential unity here. Um, not only with the members of the Trinity, but, but including those who are adopted into God's family. Uh, in Latin, it's the unio mystica, the mystical union that is represented in the Trinity and us being welcomed into God's family. How is that possible? Well, happens to, to uh, have to do with with um, what we read in verse twenty six. We're going to we're going to skip all these um, uh, intermediary uh, verses for next Lord's Day. There there are five sections in the upper room discourse where Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. We've already talked about the first one. The second one is in verse twenty six. Look at that with me. The Helper, the Holy Spirit. Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, we, we, we talk about the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as the Holy Spirit, and we, we use that phrase, Holy Spirit, so frequently that we sometimes don't realize how, how jarring it is. It is really a description of who the Spirit is. He is the Holy One. He is the one who is other than, set apart, 
special, sanctified, holy, hallowed. And this is the one that Jesus says will be in you. Has it ever won- have you ever wondered, why is it that the Holy Spirit doesn't have the same ministry in the, New- in the Old Testament as he does in the New Testament? The Holy Spirit indwells believers from the New Testament, from, from, uh, from, from Pentecost forward. Why is it that the Holy Spirit did not do that in the Old Testament? He was certainly with his people, but didn't dwell within them. Why is that? It's because Christ had not yet died. We call the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit because he can only dwell in that person who has himself been hallowed. That is, Jesus had to die in order to atone for man's sin, to bring forgiveness, to cleanse from sin and death that which um, uh, overcomes, has overcome every human being. So so the, the problem of sin and death had to be resolved. There had to be a declaration of hallowedness on the part of a particular individual before the Holy Spirit could come and dwell within them. Now that person isn't, though he is declared to be justified in the sight of God, declared to be among the saints, among God's elect, that person isn't automatically cleaned up. He is simply declared to be one of God's holy ones. And the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit, because he is there, thereby now making practical that declaration of holiness. There is a ju- judicial pronouncement at the, at the moment of, ju- of, of justification that a person is saved. A person is marked by God. That person is, 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 is hallowed in that sense. It's a judicial pronouncement. Now, there will be a practical working out of holiness that the Holy Spirit does. He cleans us up from the inside out. So the Holy Spirit not only dwells in a holy vessel that has been set aside for the Lord's glory, but now he is being made holy. You'll notice in our text, verse 26, Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Well, he says the Father's going to send the Holy Spirit. Chapter 16, he says he's going to send him. Um, and, and, and the Holy Spirit is going to, notice these two things. It's going to teach you all things. And secondly, bring to remembrance all that I said. Now, the disciples in particular needed this recollection. Right now, how much of what Jesus is is saying to them in this upper room discourse are they really going to remember purely on their own uh, faculties and 
with their own uh, recollection. They are so concerned, wigged out, fearful, afraid. Jesus has said to Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And the rest of them are going to say, well, if the big fisherman is going to deny you, what hope is there for me? Uh, we are all lost. We are sunk. Jesus is going to die. He's, he, he says he's the Messiah. We believe he's the Messiah. How is that all going to work out? They are so wigged out with all of these problems, concerns in their minds. They can't remember anything Jesus is saying. And yet we have every word that Jesus spoke. Maybe not every word he spoke. We have what the Holy Spirit knew we needed. The Holy Spirit taught them. The Holy Spirit brought to remembrance the things Jesus said. Now here's the tie-over and here's the application for us. I'm, I'm not at the application in our message yet. Hang tight. Um, but but, but here, here's, here's the takeaway. The Holy Spirit makes us holy by His Word. He's the one who teaches us all things. He's the one who brings to remembrance the things we have tucked away in our mind and in our soul. And by that written Word... Primarily, the Holy Spirit changes us and transforms us to be a holy people reflective of the Lord Jesus. Okay, now for application of, uh, of the sermon. Um, I, I, I made a big deal about the change, or the addition rather, of uh, prepositions in um, the work of the Holy Spirit. He has a particular divine mission to be with God's people, but after the death of Christ, ascension of Christ, coronation of Christ, he comes at Pentecost. And there at Pentecost, he is now indwelling every believer. The proposition makes a difference, a big difference, we have, every believer has resident within their soul the divine guide, the divine instructor, the divine teacher, the divine encourager, the divine paraclete. The one who is called alongside of. He lives within you if you're a believer. Wow. Now let me make a um, a, a, a heteros use of the preposition in for just a minute. We're, we're, I'm going to use the same, same, um, uh, same preposition, but in a different sense. There's a lot of people who will say that they believe in God. Uh, they believe that God exists, or they believe that God somehow brought the world into, exam, uh, into existence. That's great. There is a, an eternal difference between believing in God and believing God. The first is good. Really good. The second one is salvation. Second point of application. I direct your attention back to uh, 
chapter um, 14, verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. It's at that moment in their, in their meal together that Jesus stood up to go. And he looked on the faces of his disciples and he saw fear. So he sat down, took out a three-by-five card, and said, I will come to you. And he signed his name. And like so many people that struggle with fear, um, I'm thinking of this elderly woman that was struggling with dementia. Um, there, there is that need for, for family to come alongside, to encourage and, and strengthen and, and, and be the anchor they need. I want to read a section from uh, G.I. Packer's uh, classic book, um, Knowing God. If you've never read this book, it's, 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 a, it's a must. He said this. The gift of sonship to God becomes ours, not through being born, but through being born again. Sonship to God is his gift of grace. It is not, not a natural, but an adoptive sonship. And he, then he quotes from uh, another article that he wrote earlier in his life, where he said this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father, he puts in air quotes, is the Christian name for God. And he concludes, Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our, our grasp of adoption. He chose whom he wanted to be his children. And he did everything necessary to make that happen. And in the midst of our, of our, of our concerns, our confusions, our questions, consistently, he takes out a three-by-five card. I will come to you. Because I said so. 
Let's pray. Blessed God, we thank you for the joy that is ours in Christ. Take these feeble words of mine and the powerful words of your scripture and bring life where there is death and hope where there is discouragement. On the authority of Christ who spoke these words do we pray. Amen.